on the heels of last week's sermon on the spatial proximity of God that those who trust in Jesus have the joy and privilege of experiencing and enjoying. Paul takes us beyond a call to be a people of unity and, and rejoicing, gentleness, peace, prayer, dwelling on things that are commendable and excellent. And he speaks to the Philippians and us about the enormous issue that I just mentioned to the children, contentment. Contentment. Now, contentment is elusive, isn't it? I mean, we feel it every day. Contentment is elusive. The lack of contentment that marks not just us, but marks our nation is reflected in so many ways. And if you go around the world, nothing is different. It's, 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 a, it's something in humanity. We look for something better. We look for something different. We look for a better job, a better house, a better neighborhood, a better place to retire. And some of these moves, of course, are necessary, but some of the mobility of our society experiencing uh, experiences is fueled by a discontent that we experience that tells us that we'll be more satisfied if we go there, if we do that, and until we get there. And then we learn that our discontent actually isn't in a location. It travels with us everywhere we go because it's inside of us. You think about the brevity of marriages in our day, the turnstile of membership in churches, the, the onslaught of pornography, always looking for something more, something different. Maybe it's the desire for payback, satisfaction in that, whether it's just or not. Uh, gambling. I'm a big hockey fan, and this year, uh, lots of, lot, I mean, almost every commercial it seemed like was this gambling option, which not that long ago was so illegal that, you know, big names in sports industry got black names because of it. Then, of course, there's the draw of new phones, televisions, cars, shoes, clothes, and the list goes on and on, and, and targeted advertisements don't help any. You talk about wanting a new mattress in your house. And if you have Instagram on your phone, what's gonna show up on Instagram like two minutes later? Hey, there's a mattress. You know, a little frightening, um, but helpful as it turns out. So um, anyway, where in your life do you see contentment, discontentment? Where in your life do you see discontent at work? And I want you to just take a moment to take note of what just came to your mind. Write it down if you need to. Where do you see discontent? And if you're coming up with blanks right now, consider what it is that you just complained about. Each of us have found discontent making its home in our heart this week, and each of us need help. The scourge of discontent in mankind makes any pandemic pale in comparison. And there is there's only one thing that helps. Among those who haven't been made free in Christ, this certainly makes sense, this discontent. But among those who claim the name of Jesus, who have been forgiven of sin, given eternal life, given the indwelling of the Spirit, full and confident access to the throne to pray and commune with their Lord God, their Creator, the lover of their soul, and to enjoy His spatial nearness with the promise, the guarantee of heaven, discontent does not make much sense at all. Discontentment is one of the Christian's so-called respectable sins. Jerry Bridges wrote a book called Respectable Sins uh, a number of years ago, and it's like right smack dab in the middle, middle, discontent. Somewhat accepted, it's made normal, it's been made commonplace. I mean, we all want to be content, but if you're like me, you might not have felt it to be among the most primary fights in your life and we would be mistaken. And to help heighten the seriousness of the vital nature of what Paul addresses today, let me share the words of someone who is long gone, a guy named Thomas Watson, in his helpful book, The Art of Divine Contentment. You won't hear this kind of talk in any book today, I don't think. But I think he's right. He says, if there is a blessed life before we come to heaven, it is the contented life. And why not be contented? Why are you angry? And why is your countenance fallen? 
Man of all creatures has the least cause to be discontented. Can you deserve anything from God? Does he owe you anything? Why do you give way to this irrational and hurtful sin of discontent? May the good Lord humble his own people for nourishing such a viper in their breast as not only cuts out the bowels of their comfort, but spits venom in the face of God himself. Oh, Christian, if you are overspread with this fretting leprosy, you carry the man of sin about you, for you set yourself above God and act as if you are wiser than he and would sassily prescribe to him what condition is best for you. Oh, this devil of discontent, which, whenever it possesses a person, makes his heart a little hell. I mean, yikes. Is that the way you feel about discontent? When you put it like that, I want to hear what Paul teaches here to learn how to put this devil of discontent to death in my life and replace it with divine contentment. Not to be satisfied with a little bit of discontent, but to take that little bit of discontent and by God's grace and the power of the Spirit and turn it towards divine contentment. To be a people marked by contentment in God, having met Jesus, being changed like this board was changed, being changed by him so we are no longer just like the world in our discontent. We're battling it. We're fighting against it by pursuing growing in divine contentment, to truly be a people who move away from grumbling, to move away from complaining, to move away from being filled with anxious worry about everything. Does it not sound wonderful to think about the potential of actually being truly content in all things? Do you believe it can be done? Here's what we're going to do this morning. I want to consider two questions, simple two questions. Here's the first. What in the world is divine contentment? What is divine contentment? In Philippians 4, in our passage specifically, a real man in history named Paul sits in prison because of corrupt officials facing possible execution over false charges, and he takes the time in a letter of thanks to these Philippians, to teach us about divine contentment in this portion. And we're getting to the close of this letter to the Philippian Christians, and Paul wants to say thank you to the Philippians for the generosity towards him financially. He had been in a difficult situation, and the Philippians, from hundreds of miles away, out of significant concern and care for Paul, sent his way some money and a partner to care for him in a great way. He's thankful for their concern. He's thankful for their help. He's thankful for the fact that they cared for him enough to finally come and provide care for him in this way. But as important as the thankfulness is, perhaps more importantly, is his desire to have them know and understand that he had not been sitting discontent, waiting for them to provide something. He had not been angsty, mildly frustrated while waiting for them to finally revive their concern. He's not ticked off here. He said, I'm thankful that you've finally been able to do it. Thank you. As thankful as he is for the generosity, he wants them to know that he lived in the enjoyment of full and free contentment no matter his circumstances. And in so doing, he gives us enormously helpful counsel in addressing the discontent that you and I have in our own hearts even right now as we sit. Paul tells us in verse 11, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I have learned to be content. Wow! You've learned to be content? I struggle with contentment all the time. How, how, Paul? How have you learned to be content? I mean, wouldn't it be awesome to be content all the time? Well, for it to be as awesome as we think, it's important to consider what it means. What does contentment mean? Here's my shot. And this will be up on the screen in different times throughout this morning. Hopefully left up as, as much as possible. Godly contentment or divine contentment 
is an inner sense of rest or peace that comes from being in right relationship with God, enjoying his spatial presence now, looking forward to the promises of the new heavens and new earth, knowing that he is in absolute control of everything that happens to us. And that's a big definition. But that's, that's what I want to talk about this morning. Godly contentment is an inner sense of rest and peace that comes from being in right relationship with God, enjoying his spatial presence now, looking forward to the promises of the new heavens and new earth, knowing that he is in absolute control, absolute control of everything that happens to us. And certainly, it means having our focus on the kingdom of God in which we are eternal citizens and serving him with gladness together rather than our focus being on the kingdom of this world and striving to find some half-baked contentment that it offers, but for a moment. Oh, oh, this will make me happy. Oh, this will make me happy. This is what we're like. There's something more, something far greater to cling to, and to love, and to appreciate, and to know contentment. Knowing, continually reminding ourselves and reminding one another that in Christ, we have been made sons and daughters of God, forgiven, accepted in the beloved, welcomed into his presence. I mean, really knowing that. When we're discontent, that stuff gets out the window. Easily, quickly, moment by moment, day by day, week after week, month after month, until we're so used to just living in discontentment. Listen, godly contentment is, does not stray away from the gospel of grace. All, that's, all the benefits of knowing God, of trusting him, of believing in him, knowing that he is with us, knowing that he has never left us and he will never leave us, he will never forsake us, that he is always that stone chair, that, that rock, that fortress, faithful to strengthen, faithful to comfort, faithful to provide, faithful to preserve, faithful to present us blameless with great joy on that final day before Almighty God. Listen, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, how will he not also with him graciously give us what? All things, all things. How will he not? He's accomplished the greater thing by far. How will he not graciously provide us the lesser, specifically giving us all things that we need? As those who profess, trust, faith in Christ, we have been given eyes to believe that when God blesses with riches or comfort, we thankfully, we thankfully enjoy them and knowing it all comes from his hand. And it causes us to be generous of, of not just financially, but our very lives for the strengthening and spread of the kingdom of God that we're part of, laying up treasures in heaven rather than expending everything on the kingdom of this world. And as those who profess trust in Christ, we have been given eyes to believe that if God removes our riches, if God removes our comfort, while certainly not easy, our joy remains steady because our joy is not found in the riches or the comfort, but our satisfaction and joy is fixed on him the one who never changes. Divine contentment is being free to not feel so battered around by difficult and changing circumstances that are truly trials to our faith. Things like an unfulfilling or low-paying job, thinking about things like singleness beyond your desired singleness, an inability to bear children, an unhappy marriage, physical struggles, emotional struggles, psychological struggles, parental struggles, or continued poor health, and the list could go on. And, and sometimes, maybe even often, our, our, our discontent doesn't have to do with such big things like that. Matter of fact, most often, a lot of our discontent are, are trivial in comparison. Discontent simply has many fingers 
in our lives. But if contentment is somewhere around the definition I just described, then I think Thomas Watson, again, concludes rightly about its value to the Christian. Here's what Thomas Watson says. He says, I do not know of any ornament in religion that more bespangles a Christian or glitters in the eye of God and man more than this of contentment. Nor certainly is there anything wherein all the Christian virtues work more harmoniously or shine more transparently than in this orb. Every grace acts its part here. This is the true philosopher's stone, which turns all into gold. This is the curious enamel and embroidery of the heart, which makes Christ's spouse all glorious within. How should every Christian be ambitious to wear such a sparkling diamond? Contentment glitters in the eye of God and man. Contentment turns all to gold. Contentment makes all glorious within. Certainly the discontent we experience then mars each of those statements. Some might enjoy just being perennially discontent. They become so attuned to complaint and discontent that they find a sort of comfort in it. And none of us need to learn how to be discontent. It just comes naturally. But this can never be acceptable for the one who proclaims to have found the pearl of greatest price in Jesus. So friends, where there's discontent lurking in your heart and in your mind, let's you and I consider together how we might boot it out, replacing it with divine contentment, okay? Let's do this together here with the second question. How in the world do we acquire this divine contentment? How in the world do we acquire this kind of divine contentment? The, the world, of course, goes about the pursuit of contentment in all the wrong ways, finding temporary contentment, to be sure, from time to time, but it does not last. It's flittering around, and we tend to copycat them. But Christians are part of a different kingdom. If we understand God's word right, if we understand that we're citizens, just even of Philippians chapter 3, what Paul has said, we're citizens of a different kingdom that does not provide temporary, fleeting contentment, but full and free and lasting contentment. That's, the pro- that's one of the promises of Christianity. That's one of the promises of following Jesus, is really, truly finding and knowing and experiencing freedom from discontent in being content in Christ. So back to the definition. Can you throw it back up, Ben? Uh, no. Um, Godly contentment is an inner sense of rest or peace that comes from being in right relationship with God, enjoying his spatial presence now, looking forward to the promises of the new heavens and the new earth, knowing that he is in absolute control of everything that happens to us. And what we hear from Paul is that he has found this kind of contentment. And probably broader and thicker, deeper, higher, all that. But, But that's a shot. And so, lo and behold, you and I want this kind of contentment, right? We want this kind of contentment. So it seems as though, it seems as though this passage is good for us. (laughs) It's like written for us this morning. Here's a summary statement of what I think he tells us. And this is the main point of the morning. That the freedom of divine contentment in our lives will only come from being increasingly captivated by our Lord. captivated, enthralled, specifically, and these will be our three points in this portion, that he is the glorious sovereign one who is worth surrendering to. That he is the beautiful Savior who is worth serving, and that he is the wonderfully sufficient one who is worth trusting. So I want to take those one at a time and then get to a little bit of application. The freedom of divine contentment you can experience comes when you become captivated by the Lord as the glorious sovereign one who is worth surrendering to. And Ben, just leave that up for a while. Paul mentions in verse 10 that the Philippians had revived their concern for him. He knows that, you know, they've always been concerned. They lacked opportunity. We have no idea specifically what the reasons are for their lack of opportunity. But whatever the reason, 
Paul didn't settle in there. He said, but, but listen, I know that God's in control. I, I, I know that God knows my need, that God will supply or he won't supply as he sees fit, and I trust him entirely, and I surrender to him entirely. Paul had a firm grasp of the truth that he was subject to the sovereign God, the good and sovereign God in every area of life, now least of which was this most practical area of financial support. When we're when, when push comes to shove in our lives, if, if the finances aren't there at any given time for us, I mean, specifically, we go pretty quickly to discontent. Or if our health is removed from us, pretty specifically, quickly, we go to discontent. Things get too busy, crazy in our lives. We, we... Here, here was Paul in prison, unable to pursue his profession that earned him money, and he was literally in a tight spot. He wrote a number of letters during this time, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. Um, and if you ever get Siri or, or uh, Amazon Alexa probably to say Philemon, she'll say Philemon, which is a beautiful name. He asked for prayer in each of those letters. He doesn't ask for money but he asked for prayer. He asked for a specific kind of prayer. He asked for prayer and boldness, prayer for faithfulness in his witness. He trusted in and submitted to the sovereignty of God to provide for his needs. I, I wanted to share a story from George Mueller, but I will put it in the sermon follow-up later today for you to look at. It just was too long, and it would stretch this sermon out uh, too much. But it's an amazing story of a recognition of someone trusting God implicitly, not easily whatsoever, to the last moment sometimes when the knock on the door comes, when everyone's sitting at the table ready to eat but no food's on the table. Anyway, start telling the story. Look, God is going to provide for Paul. Paul knows it. Paul knows it. There's not a question in his mind about it. He trusts God entirely. And he also trusts because God has provided for him over and over and over again. But sometimes he knows that God seems to turn off the valve of provision. And so Paul had to learn to get along with humble means or, or a thorn in his side that was sent from the Lord also. And while certainly not easy, at those times, Paul did not grumble. He did not panic. It doesn't mean he enjoyed it. But you see, in the, in the hardness of it, in the difficulty, in the tears, and in the sorrow, and in the confusion, and in the questions why, he says, but I trust you. Surrender to you, sovereign Lord. John Newton echoed this reality in one wonderfully helpful statement, and this is one to remember, this is one to memorize, this is one to put up on the bathroom wall and, and in your car and everywhere, it's this. Everything is necessary that he sends, nothing can be necessary that he withholds. It was this that Paul had learned the sovereign, good Lord over all was gloriously worth surrendering to. He was gloriously worth submitting to. He was gloriously worth yielding to, not in anger, not in complaint, not in grumbling, but in peaceful trust that he knows what's best. He truly does. Paul knew his God. And we would do well to understand that Paul wasn't a super Christian. I mean, the guy was super educated, had a, quite the heritage, but he was just like you and me, same kind of struggles. It didn't come naturally to him to be content. It wasn't something that happened immediately for him. It was a, it was a process, learning to trust God in all the small things, thanking God for the small, trusting God for the petty grievances taught him to trust God for the big things, the difficulties. And so it is for us 
something that we learn by walking with God, trusting Him day after day, indeed moment after moment, yielding to Him, surrendering to Him, thanking Him for all He provides, trusting His providence, trusting His wisdom, trusting His goodness, trusting the fact that He sometimes chooses to withhold certain things from us. And that does not strip Him of His goodness. It makes Him all wise doesn't make him all wise. It shows the reality. It gives us a hint into the fact that I have to trust him because he knows everything. Listen, the key to this process is understanding that, uh, not just understanding here, but having it sink to here in our hearts, understanding that everything major and minor is under the sovereign, very real, very wise goodness of God who is for you and not against you. In his wisdom and goodness, he uses all our circumstances to train us in godliness. If we submit to him and trust him, it's our attitude in trials and our deliberate submission to his sovereignty in the trial that is most critical. Our our understanding of who God is to know truly who God is, which is why we want to You know, I have these child dedications to say, we must teach them all about God in the home and in the church. We we never have to wonder what it is that God's trying to teach us in our difficulty. He's always, 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 always working in us to truly depend on him. It does not have to get much more complicated than that depending on the sovereign goodness of God in no, no matter what you're going through. I mean, all circumstances are not equal. Some are super, super difficult. But listen, it doesn't have to be a super, super difficult thing to set us off. It's little, little things throughout the day that set us off into discontent. And see, if we're not going to address those little things, then these big things are going to be overwhelming. We never have to wonder what it is God's trying to teach us. Even amid situations that are significantly dark and difficult. Even the dark is light to him. And to all who are in him, to all who enjoy his presence, always with us, even the dark is light for us. Why? Because the Lord's with us. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, right? Psalm 23. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will be content for you are with me, you're with me, you see? Now the question is, are you captivated and enthralled with Christ Jesus and all the promises that are yes and amen in him? Does that, does that captivate you or is it, there's a promise, there's a promise, huh, huh, that's interesting, that's it's good for my journal. Addressing, addressing the realities, being captivated by the realities of who God is, what Jesus has done, who he is to us today in this moment, and who he will be on that final day when we see him face to face. Listen, if you're walking with God and you find yourself in a desperate situation, you can know that you are not there by happen chance. The good, sovereign God has put you there for some reason, but specifically for training and faith, for for knowing to truly depend on him, to, to really, some of you are going through it really hard right now. Don't, don't make it worse by trying to find out what the, what, what the reason is, because the reason is primarily over all things, underneath all things, that you would place your trust and your hope and faith in a good and sovereign God, no matter what happens. That you might share his holiness and experience the nearness of his presence. And he is entirely worth surrendering to. Again, it may be a small crisis or a major life-threatening crisis, but as we surrender to and trust the sovereign God, you will know, that is, you will experience the contentment that comes from him, divine contentment, freedom of divine contentment. Again, Watson, I think this is the last quote from Watson, he says this, the consideration that there is a decree determining and a providence disposing all things that happen to us would work our hearts to holy contentment. Now, 
You hear the application there. The application is the consideration, thinking about processing, not just in one ear and out the other, considering that there is a decree determining, providence disposing all things that happen to us would work our hearts to holy contentment. The wise God has ordered our condition. If he sees that it is better for us to abound, we shall abound. And if he sees that it is better for us to want, we shall want. Be content to be at God's disposal. We are made for him. (laughs) And he's made for us to find satisfaction and content. Are you content to be at your good, sovereign God's disposal? Will you trust his heart towards you in whatever it is you find yourself discontent in this morning? That the freedom of contentment you can experience comes when you become captivated by the Lord as your glorious, sovereign one who is worth surrendering to. Second point under this second question, the freedom of divine contentment you experience, you can experience, comes when you become captivated by the Lord as the beautiful Savior um, who is worth serving. The reason Paul knew that God would meet his basic needs was that Jesus himself had promised, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Uh, all what things, Paul? Well, Paul would say, well, what did Jesus say? Right before that, Matthew six twenty-five, he says, what you will eat, what you will drink, what you will wear, all things that tend to cause anxiety or discontentment. How am I going to get by? How is this going to happen? What, is God going to provide the basic needs that I have? Is it, what's what's going to happen? And Jesus was teaching that if we put our focus on the kingdom he's called us into, being, being transfixed by this kingdom, being, being captivated by the Lord of the kingdom, by his forgiveness and enjoying his record of perfect righteousness that he's given us, serving him and growing in righteousness by the power of the Spirit, enjoying his spatial presence with us, we will find that God does truly, for sure, absolutely take care of us. Without a shadow of a doubt. Always takes care of us. This is not just positive thinking. This is a declaration of God that he will give us all that is necessary. He is always with us. He's never apart from us. If our focus is on our Savior, on trusting him, believing him, and all his promises, and walking in obedience by the power of the Spirit, honestly finding Jesus to be to be the pearl of greatest price, to be the treasure of all treasures and not just some sort of religious important figure in history that, that I guess I need to ask to forgive me, but he's our treasure, then we will grow to be content with what he provides and what he withholds. Because in all of it, he is always there and he never changes. And he's the treasure, not the circumstance. And friends, it's important to note here that He promises to supply our needs, not everything we want. Perhaps we've grown accustomed and expectant of American needs being met. We've grown accustomed to feeling well and being comfortable. And perhaps, as hard as it is to say, I mean, as we read through God's Word and as we look at church history, the lives of the saints through the last 2,000 years specifically in Christianity, we might need to have our expectations regarding what is needful managed a bit or, or a lot. The interesting thing is when you find Jesus to be the treasure of treasures and you live your life increasingly captivated by him and you serve him with joy, the actual pleasure you experience far surpasses any impoverished pleasure of the world that you've generally found satisfied satisfies you, but it's limited. It's always changing. You're always wanting something else, something more, something other. But when you've found Jesus to be the treasure of treasures, nothing else touches it. There's no competition. This is not just like like nice spiritual talk. This is the reality. This is what Paul's found. This is how Paul says rejoice while he's sitting in prison in shackles with a little pittance of food every day, having been mistreated. This is what gets Paul back up out of the ditch after he's stoned almost to death, left for dead, and he gets up, 
by the power of God, by the Spirit of God, he loves his Lord. If you follow Paul in being so captivated by Jesus that you find joy in life and serving the one who's given you forgiveness and life and promises galore, you will be content whether you have little or much and your heart will grow increasingly filled with joy. In fact, uh, you will count all things as rubbish compared to knowing Christ, which is what he just said, right? Well, while there are many ways of serving the Savior, part of seeking first God's kingdom means serving him with your money and possessions. This is just simply one of the major things in God's word because what makes us more discontent than a lack of money and possessions or possibly too much money and too many possessions? It just seems to all often settle in there or something affecting our bodies. That's another piece. The money and possessions we have, dear Christian, are not really ours. And the sooner we get that, the sooner we understand this, the better. They're really not ours, but they are ours to steward as a gift from God, providing for us, for the good of the church, for the good of his kingdom. Now, we mistakenly think that we will be content when we accumulate enough money in the bank and we accumulate enough possessions to make us secure. And the truth is, you will know contentment when you give generously and sacrificially to the Lord's work out of love for Jesus, not out of some sort of religious obligation, but specifically because you are captivated by the king, you are captivated by his kingdom, and you want everything that God's given you to go towards him and what he's doing in your family, in your home, in the church, across the world, but providing for you as well. Joy and I had a really hard time when we moved from Iowa to Minneapolis. We, I was hardly making a lick of anything. I was trying to sell Aflac. You guys, many of you have heard the story, and I stink at selling. Don't, don't ever ask me to sell something. Uh, it was terrible. I, I had no money. We, we had very little money. God provided supernaturally all the time for us, but as far as me earning anything, not there. God provided specifically what we needed all the time and learning to be content in the little and realizing that even that thousand dollars that just came in is not mine. Partially to provide for us. God knew that we lived in Minneapolis, which is an expensive city to live in. He knew that, so it's like thankful for the finances that came in, but, but quickly understood during those days, I'm not making any money. And the Lord's providing it. But the reality is, even if I was making money by selling things, who is it that's providing it? But our sovereign, good, gracious God. So you will know contentment when you give generously, sacrificially to the Lord's work in the church and benevolence and global mission like our partnership with Mark and Becca. Jesus said, for where your treasure is, Think about the word captivated by Jesus. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If your treasure's in the world, your heart will be in this world, which if you haven't noticed is rather shaky. Absolutely robs of any contentment. But if your treasure is in the kingdom of God and with the kingdom of that kingdom, finding him to be worthy... Your heart will be there, and it is secure, certain, uh, uh, eternal, and unshakable, and produces ever-increasing satisfaction and contentment that will be marked by significant generosity in life and possessions. The freedom of contentment you can experience comes when you become captivated by the Lord as the beautiful Savior who is worthy of serving. Finally, the freedom of contentment you can experience comes when you become captivated by the Lord as the wonderful, sufficient one who's worthy of trusting. Paul says that he had learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Um, what was the secret? Well, it was no secret. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The all-sufficient, indwelling, worthy Christ was Paul's source of strength and source of contentment. Consider Hebrews 13.5 for a moment where um, the author says, keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. Do you hear the emphasis again on the Lord's spatial presence here? 
He, the worthy, sovereign, and sufficient Savior, will never leave you. He is with us always, even unto the end of the age. We can learn to lean entirely on him in every situation, no matter how trying it is, no matter how depressing it is, no matter how discouraging it is, no matter how frightening it is. Again, we would be wise to consider that there is a need to learn not only how to get along in times of need, but also how to live with abundance. In times of need, we're tempted to get our eyes off the Lord and grow worried, but in times of abundance, we're tempted to forget our need for the Lord and trust in ourselves rather than in Him. And that's why the wise man in Proverbs says this, give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who's the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. And so I say, and somewhere in between, Lord. When tempted by poverty, trust in the Lord. When tempted by riches, thank the Lord. A a thankful heart is a humble heart that believes and acknowledges gratitude for God's provision. If If you want to see a proud, discontented heart, all you need to look for is a lack of thankfulness in the small things. For the large things and for everything in between. For instance, thanking God for our daily bread, even when we've got enough in the bank for many days' bread. It keeps us humbly trusting in Him at times of abundance, and it will position our hearts for times of leanness. I was thinking this morning of Job's response to difficulty. Job is the book right before Psalms, and if you read his story, you'll read brutal. It's brutal. So difficult. And yet, he had learned the freedom of divine contentment. Not that he was happy about everything that happened and just like it was okay, but he said stuff like this, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's a heart that's free and content. Still not pleased. The whole rest of the book, you hear his arguments, questions. Or he says to his wife, who tells him to curse God and die, he says, hey, look, shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? When Paul says all things, he's specifically speaking of doing all things through Christ who strengthens him to live for him and follow him as a citizen of the kingdom of God. Not necessarily just to dunk a basketball or to get a touchdown, although those things would fit in there too, I suppose, for a believer. Also, I can lose a Stanley Cup playoff series and be okay with it. See, but this is like little things, right? Comparatively speaking to cancer, or to the death of a loved one or a loved animal. No matter the conditions, no matter the ease, no matter the difficulty, Paul can walk with the Lord faithfully in holiness of thought, word, and deed. He can ask for the provisions needed to carry out the work and expect God to answer. Paul said elsewhere in 2 Corinthians 9, he says, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things, things at all times, he, you, may abound in every good work. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Listen, as as we saw back in chapter 2, we're called to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because it is God who works in us to will and to work for his good pleasure. His good pleasure. Christians walk this road of life by constant moments of dependence and hours of dependence and days of dependence on the power of Christ, of the spatially near, sovereignly ruling and reigning Christ who is with us, near and present, and given us the dwelling of the Spirit of God. In Philippians 4.13, that famous verse 
God is continually, this, this word str- strengthens. It's, it's, a, it's a passive, uh, present, and active verb. It, it, is, it is God strengthening us. And it is happening now and always. He is strengthening us continually, day by day. If you've trusted in Jesus, he is strengthening you day after day, infusing you and I with strength as we serve in his kingdom. On account of our union with Christ, as those who've trusted in him and declared him Lord of our lives, we enjoy the all-sufficient power and presence of Christ in all things, at all times that we live in, and for his kingdom. Christ is sufficient for your every need. Not just some, not just the spiritual ones. Every need, physical, spiritual, emotional, psychological. Are you captivated by that? Are you in wonder that the creator produces these things in you and strengthens you? Producing in you things like love, joy, peace, patience, patience, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control, which are all fruit of the Spirit. It's the Spirit's work in you, moving in you, causing you to look upward and to, to find joy and contentment in the midst of whatever. Through hardship, through happiness, through all of that, we have been equipped for every good work through the power of the Spirit and the breathed out Word of God if we would just trust Him. And so really, it's will you trust Him? not just right now in this moment, but in the middle of a situation or on the onset, in the onset of a difficulty, are you willing to say, I, I don't understand that at all, but I, but I know you. Listen, the living Christ, the indwelling Spirit of God and the power of the Word of God are powerful to strengthen you, to serve Him, follow Him with growing real contentment. Whatever your needs are today, learn to trust daily in the sufficient Savior and you will know the freedom of His contentment in your soul. The freedom of divine contentment you can experience comes when you become captivated by the Lord as the wonderful, sufficient one who is worthy of your trust. Now the church today not necessarily our church, but just the church today is selling out the joy and trust and serving and surrendering the all-sufficient Savior for any number of things that simply do not and will not satisfy. The issue is not complicated. Your circumstances might be complex, but the issue is not complicated. Circumstances play a part. The fact of the matter is simply that many professing Christians are not captivated by the Lord Jesus. Christians are captivated by all sorts of other things that grab their hearts and they end up discontent in varied ways as they've drifted from the love that once burned brightly in their hearts toward Christ. A legend kind of story that I read this week was about Paul. It says, legend has it, the wealthy merchant during Paul's day had heard about the apostle, had become so fascinated that he determined to visit him. And so when passing through Rome, he got in touch with Timothy. He arranged an interview with Paul in prison. Stepping inside his cell, the merchant was surprised to find the apostle looking rather old and physically frail. But he felt at once the strength, the serenity, and the magnetism of this man who relied on Christ as his all in all. They talked for some time, and finally the merchant left. Outside the cell, he asked Timothy, hey, what's the secret of this man's power? I've never seen anything like it before. Oh, did you not guess, replied Timothy? Paul is in love. The merchant looked puzzled, in in love? Yes, said Timothy, Paul is in love with Jesus Christ. The merchant looked even more bewildered. "Is, Is that all, he asked. Timothy smiled and replied, well, that's everything. So is that true of you and I, friends? Learning contentment may seem complex, but it's truly not. Certainly it's a fight and struggle, but it's not complicated. If you find yourself not captivated by the Lord and thus in the damaging and depressing arms of discontent, what do you do? Three things, four things. First is repent. Repent. You have the privilege of repenting as a Christian. A joy to repent 
as an unbeliever, if God is calling you today, like to, I want to love Jesus and trust him, repent of your sins, of your lack of trust. The church in Ephesus was a wonderful church that grew captivated by something other than Jesus. So Jesus wrote them a letter with the final word of exhortation and warning. He says this, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you've not grown weary, but I have this against you. You've abandoned the love you had at first. Remember from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Now, what works did they do at first? Well, of the many things I might recommend, may I recommend three things to you this morning and to me. First, live in the good of the gospel by growing in thankfulness for what the Lord has done at the cross. Take up reading a gospel again. Perhaps it's shutting the TV off, putting your phone away, shutting off notifications, putting work away, reading a book, listening to a book that tells you more about Jesus, about what he's accomplished. Consider going to our website or church center and and looking for one of the many testimonies that we have on there of God's sovereign work in people's lives to see the activity of God in others' lives and to gain a fresh awareness of the activity of God in your own life. Maybe it's inviting a friend, maybe another member over to the church, over to your house, I should say, and hear their story of faith. Be encouraged, be strengthened. Second, live in the good of the gospel by growing in thankfulness for how the Lord has provided for you over the years. You'd be shocked. If you just take some time to listen to the Lord, to consider, write out how you've seen God provide for you each day. If you're having a hard time finding something, stop and pray and maybe start by considering that you have breath and your heart is beating and your mind is working and that you're about to actually write something on a piece of paper which is like magical when you think about it. Thinking about something and it moves my hand to write something that can be understood. It's the glory of God. Third, live with eyes lifted up, knowing the Lord is spatially present with you as you await his return with patient trust and hope. Listen to the promise of Jesus to the church in Ephesus at the end of, 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 of Revelation 2, or verse 7 anyway. He says this, if they listen to their sovereign, sufficient Savior, they listen to him, repent, and turn back, and they, they look to this first love that they once had to want to be captivated by Jesus. He says this, to the one who conquers, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And that promise, oh my, that promise will stoke the fires of your first love and stir deep contentment that not only is all is well now, all will be well on that day. All is well now, even amidst the worst situation, that all is well because Jesus is with me. I am his, he is mine, and one day we'll see each other face to face, and all will be well. All will be well. The Lord is worthy of our trust, you guys. Put away the discontentment, and put on the contentment of Christ. In the minutia of the days, and in the difficulty of days.